Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This podcast is culled from my archives. Back in 1995, I spent a couple of weeks traveling around Mississippi for the BBC World Service. I had never been there. I had a vague idea that if you wanted to have the conversation about race that Americans are always supposed to be having, the best place to have it would be in Mississippi. I started my trip in the Delta, described in the title of a book by Professor James Cobb of the University of Georgia as the most southern place on earth. I ended it at a Sons of Confederate Veterans camp meeting in Natchez. Talk about Alpha and Omega. Anyway, America still needs to have that conversation, and so I present both of these talks here. A word about my voice as you hear it in these recordings. It has aged a bit in the last quarter century, and in digitizing the talks, the BBC seems to have sanded away the dynamic range of my natural sound. I won't come back after the second piece, so I'll do the commercial now. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. An ocean and a decade are a good distance from which to observe your homeland. What seems like an earthquake up close hardly makes a ripple over the water, and you see with greater clarity social changes. In the last ten years, the most subtle of these seems to be America is acquiring a past. American society has always been focused on the future. It's the reason for American optimism. My compatriots took comfort in the certainty that tomorrow would always be better than today. With the constant looking ahead, the past tended to be ignored. But in recent years, the future has become an uncertain place. People have begun to look to the past for certainty. But even here, they're having a hard time finding it. The problem is that while the facts of American history are generally agreed, what those facts mean isn't. There's one region of the country where this grand generalization isn't applicable, the South. Perhaps because it was briefly a nation of its own before being forced to rejoin the United States after a bloody civil war, but in the southern states, people know exactly what the facts of their history mean, and they see in that history signs pointing a new way forward for the whole country. It's no surprise that the most radical politician in the U.S., House Speaker Newt Gingrich, is a history professor from the South. The sovereign state of Mississippi is the most spiritually southern state of all. It's the southern state where the past has its tightest grip. Or so it seemed to me. I'd never actually been there. So I found myself going south into Mississippi, the opening line from an old blues song going around over and over in my head. Can't tell my future, sure can't tell my past. The song had been recorded in the 1920s in an area of northwestern Mississippi called the Delta, and that's where I was headed. As a northerner, a Yankee, I had plenty of preconceptions about Mississippi, most of them negative. It had never been all that enticing a place, except for the Delta, where the blues was born. The Delta seemed like a good place to acclimatize myself to Mississippi. I'd listen to the blues in its purest form and ease myself into this trip. But with each mile I drove into the region, it became clear there would be no time to adjust my Yankee sensibility to this very different world, because I was in the poorest, saddest-looking part of America I have ever seen. 
I passed through little hamlets, each one more forlorn than the last. The one-story buildings were a strong breeze away from collapse. It was impossible to believe that these stores and houses had ever been new, or that they were in the United States. I rolled towards Clarksdale, the Delta's unofficial capital. On the outskirts of town, on Highway 61, there was a neon strip of fast food joints, motels, and filling stations. These ugly buildings came as a relief. They were the first new ones I'd seen in several hours. Turning where a small sign pointed towards downtown, I re-entered the landscape of poverty, blocks and blocks of it. I looked for the main street and turned down Issaquina Street. It had been a business district once. Now it was a forbidding stretch of one- and two-story buildings on the verge of collapse, with dozens of people wandering from door to door. They were all black, just as every person I'd seen walking in the little tumble-down hamlets was black. In fact, other than a few guys fishing by a dam, I hadn't seen a white person in the street since I drove into the Delta. I went under a railway bridge to the right side, the white side of the tracks, and found myself in downtown Clarksdale. I wandered around for a bit and found a blues record shop, Rooster Records, walked in and started thumbing through the racks. Seated by the counter was a woman in her early twenties, sitting cross-legged on a chair, wearing a long smock which draped over her round belly. She was very pregnant. We started talking about records, then she asked me where I was from. People from Mississippi have a distinctive accent. I didn't have it, and neither did she, so as a couple of outsiders, we began to talk. I explained what I was doing, traveling and writing. She asked my impressions so far, and I said that in the five or six hours I had been in Mississippi, my first impression was of the poverty. I had never seen anything like it. It looked more like photos I had seen of Soweto in South Africa during the worst days of apartheid. Then she asked me, have you noticed how black people are here? I was surprised by the frankness of the question. I'm glad you asked that, I said to the young woman, because the folks here are the most African-looking African-Americans I have ever seen. Now, whatever embarrassment I might have felt about discussing race this frankly, and as a liberal from the North, I felt plenty, it was eased by the fact that the young woman, whose name was Selena, was herself of mixed race. Her father was black. Selena picked up my point about people's complexions. That's right. The separation of the races here was much stronger than in other parts of the South, so there wasn't the same interbreeding that happened on plantations in other places. Selena, whose own complexion was very light brown, went on to tell me that local black women asked her why she hung around when, with skin so light, she could pass for white. She could get out. Selena, however, was staying for a while because at the weekend she was marrying the father of her baby, who happened to own Rooster Records, and she invited me to come to the wedding. I spent the next few days exploring the Delta. I began to notice there were white people. You'd just have to know where to find them. I spotted them in their cars or out at the new shopping mall on Highway 61. But I was becoming increasingly disturbed by the fact that white folks seemed so separate. I stopped in at the local newspaper, and one of the editors, Debbie Long, Delta born and bred, tried to explain why. The biggest change in my lifetime, without a doubt, has been integration, she began. Long was in school in the mid-1960s when forced integration programs had gone into effect. Most whites simply pulled their children out of the state system and sent them to private academies rather than have them attend school with black kids. Debbie Long's parents hadn't, and overnight she found herself one of only two whites in her class. She did not have happy memories of her minority status. 
I asked her about the absence of whites in the street. In the Delta, she explained, echoing Selena, the races don't mingle in any social sense. Work is a different question. Debbie's family were farmers and their hired hands were black. Her daddy provided their housing. Individual relationships were formed, but they were limited. Down here, we have a saying about blacks. Love the individual, hate the race. I think there must have been a moment's silence. I said, you all do speak frankly about race down here. As Debbie Long showed me to the door, she asked me to try and understand Mississippi and to be kind in what I wrote. I needed to get away from all this racial talk. I drove out of Clarksdale. Due west on the horizon was a hump running as far as the eye could see. It was the levee, the earthwork built up to contain the Mississippi River within its course. I drove up over the levee, and a few hundred yards on the other side was the massive, mile-wide river, turbid with silt carried from places a thousand miles away, from Minnesota and Dakota and Ohio. I spent more than a little time watching the river flow, but I couldn't get the race issue out of my mind. I knew that I would have to deal with it when I came to Mississippi, but I had no idea it would be like this. Frank talk about race, all euphemism stripped away. The question of race is the central question of American history. Uh, that's too euphemistic. The question of black people and their role in society is the central issue, and the inadequate resolution of that question is behind a tremendous amount of social tension around the country today. Uh, that's too euphemistic. Not tension, the hostility between whites and blacks is greater than at any time in living memory. No one knows what the other side wants. People hardly have words to talk to each other. Integration was the answer when I was growing up. Now plenty of people on both sides question it. In the Delta, all questions about race were resolved long ago. Integration may be the temporal law, but segregation is the spiritual law. Segregation is the answer. And blacks in the Delta seemed on the surface to accept that, even if their separateness condemned most of them to living in poverty, which, until I saw it with my own eyes, was beyond my imagining, and, and it just didn't seem right. As you can tell, I was a little upset. Wanting to have some frank talk about race with some local black people, I went back to Issaquina Street that evening. I walked into a club called JJ's to listen to the blues. It was as decrepit inside as it was outside. I was the only white person in there. No one made much of the fact. I sat down at a table and two young women joined me, but serious conversation was not on their mind fun was. They started talking themselves into a good time, and the music hadn't even started. The younger of the two, about 18, told her friend a joke. I laughed, too. She turned to me and said, I've got two kids. I told my babies I work for you all week. Tonight is my night. And she smiled. She was missing her front teeth. The band struck up and promptly blew out all the fuses. Even the electrical system in JJ's was decrepit. It took two more tries before they finally got going, but when they did, the sound of their blues spread thick and sweet in the ear the way honey spreads thick and sweet over the tongue. The rhythm of the music made it impossible to sit still. I simply stood up out of my chair and started dancing by myself. Time stopped. The physical decrepitude of J.J. seemed unimportant. The questions I wanted answered seemed unimportant, too. There was just the music. Finally, Saturday night came, Selena's wedding, and for the first time in Mississippi, I was in a room with white and black folks together. 
Selena's fiancé, Jim O'Neill, a white blues fanatic, had come to the Delta 20 years before, stayed, and started recording the local musicians. Most of them were at the wedding. The white folks were a handful of locals for whom the music was a bridge across the chasm between their own upbringing and their black neighbors. There were also a few Yankee liberals who had made a permanent home in the Delta, hooked on the culture. The ceremony was being held at Mayfields, a big house on the white side of the tracks with a huge wraparound porch, large entrance hall, and parlors and living rooms going off in all directions. A piano was set up in the entrance hall, and a young black man was playing softly. If the wedding had been held in church, he'd have been playing a selection of hymns and popular classical airs on the organ. Here, it was blues, but he imparted to the notes the sacred feeling of church music. The ceremony was improvised and beautiful, and when it was over, the pianist struck up, let the good times roll. And they did. We adjourned to the Rivermount Lounge, another tumble-down club for a real party. Everyone who could play the blues did, and everyone who couldn't danced. Out on the dance floor, we were all one ensemble. There was no bandstand. The musicians mingled with the dancers. But I would be lying if I said the full distance between the white folks and the black folks was bridged. It wasn't. I had one more musical appointment to keep before leaving the Delta. I had struck up a conversation with Kenneth Lackey, the young man playing piano at Selena's wedding. He seemed interested in answering my questions about being black in this segregated world. Lackey invited me to a concert of gospel music in which he was singing. He said we might have a chance to chat then. So I packed up and Sunday evening drove down to Jonestown, one of the tumble-down black hamlets I had passed through on my way into Clarksdale. Add the sacred to the blues, Gospel music is what you get. There were several hundred people at the concert. Once again, I was the only white person in the room. Lackey came in and looked surprised to see me. We spoke briefly, but it was clear he didn't have time to discuss big questions. He had to make music. Once again, I was left alone to clap my hands in time and try to reconcile my Yankee preconceptions with what I had seen around me. But the music urged me to ignore it. Beverly Trice and the New Gospel Singers were on stage. They were singing a song whose refrain was a simple seven-word sentence, You don't know how blessed you are. They kept repeating the phrase. So simple, but each time it was sung, it seemed to have a different meaning. The spirit moved Beverly Trice. She came off the little stage and began to dance her way up the aisle. Her backup singers laid hands on her to try and control her shaking. As she worked her way through the audience, she kept chanting the phrase, You don't know how blessed you are, over and over, each time emphasizing different words, thus creating a syncopated beat that rescued me from my thoughts and took me far away from myself. You don't know how blessed you are. Are. You don't know how blessed you are. You don't know how blessed you are. As you drive along Highway 90 in Biloxi, Mississippi, just between the modern sports arena and the stretch of new motels and casinos, you pass a sign saying Beauvoir, the Jefferson Davis Shrine. When you're going a little over the speed limit, you only get a glimpse of what the sign is referring to, a magnificent 19th century mansion hidden behind a fence and shaded by huge oak trees. 
I decided to visit, not just because from the glimpse I'd had the house was beautiful, or because it was a place of historic interest, but because of the language on the sign. The word shrine was intriguing. Jefferson Davis was the first and only president of the Confederate States of America, and the Beauvoir Estate was his residence in the long years after the Confederate defeat in the American Civil War. If the sign outside his home had read, Jefferson Davis Memorial, I wouldn't have thought twice. But Jefferson Davis Shrine, with its religious connotations, seemed a little hyperbolic. But as I began my tour of Beauvoir, I quickly came to the conclusion that Shrine didn't seem so far-fetched. The place was dedicated entirely to the cause, the southern state's futile attempt to secede from the United States and create a new nation on American soil. At Beauvoir, the southern confederacy is remembered as a vanished nation, its people vanquished, and their leader, Jefferson Davis, martyred. Davis was the only one of the South's leaders to be imprisoned at the end of the Civil War. Just as at a saint's shrine, there are relics. Chief of these is the Confederate flag, the Cross of St. Andrew, a great blue X set in a field of red, the cross filled with 13 white stars. Beauvoir is an antebellum mansion built with the sultry Biloxi climate in mind. It's raised off the ground on a set of pillars so that the main level of the house can catch the breezes that come off the Gulf of Mexico. A local volunteer greets you as you walk into the grand foyer of the mansion and fills you in on the history of the Jefferson Davis family. I've visited many Civil War monuments, but there was something different about walking around Beauvoir. At Gettysburg Battlefield, the Civil War seems like history as a record of the past. At Beauvoir, the Civil War was history as unfinished business. The bookstore was full of revisionist Civil War historical tracts with titles like Facts the Historians Leave Out. The woman showing people around the main house was reading a book called What They Don't Teach You in History Class. Beauvoir is administered by the Sons of Confederate Veterans, a heritage organization for descendants of those who fought for the Southern cause. I asked Ms. Clippinger, the lady reading about the history they don't teach you, to put me in touch with the Sons, and she very kindly did. So later that afternoon, I found myself just down the road in Gulfport, talking about the Sons with Dr. Tommy Hughes, a lifelong member. You get brought up in it. It's like going to Sunday school, Hughes explained. The Sons of Confederate Veterans have 24,000 members, organized into clubs called camps. Much of their activity centers around putting on Great Granddaddy's uniform and reenacting Civil War battles, although Hughes admitted that wasn't for him. I have no desire to put on a wool uniform in the middle of summer and suffer like those people. Tommy Hughes maintained his connection to the Sons of Confederate Veterans in order to pay tribute to his ancestors and those from the Gulf Coast who fought for the cause. So what is the cause? The cause is the Constitution, which gives states the right to control their own destinies, not to be controlled from Washington. Not for the first time in Mississippi, I suggested that the right the southern states wanted to preserve when they formed the Confederacy was the right to own slaves. I'd like to be open-minded about it, but I'm from the South, Hughes said. My great-grandfather didn't own slaves. You can't convince me that he gave up everything to fight for slavery. He was fighting for something else. Then he asked me something white folks all over Mississippi had been asking me. Have you been to Natchez? No. 
Everybody tells me I should go. You really must go to Natchez. It's beautiful there, he said with dreamy pride. It's the way the South was. And as Natchez was on my way back north, and my time in Mississippi was coming to an end, I went. Even on a gray November afternoon, Natchez was indeed beautiful. Situated on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River, Natchez was the first great port north of New Orleans. Most of Mississippi was laid waste during the war, but for some reason, the Union Army decided not to destroy Natchez. One local told me it was because Natchez was so beautiful, the Yankee forces saw no point in destroying it. People in other parts of Mississippi say it's because the wealthy folks of Natchez didn't resist fiercely enough. Whatever the reason, the town today is the only place in the state where you can see what Mississippi looked like before the war, and it's pretty impressive. There are dozens of grand mansions lining the streets, some in brick, some in white stucco, most with great colonnaded porticos designed to look like Greek temples. The houses are open to the public. I stopped in at one and asked in the gift shop if they could put me in touch with the local Sons of Confederate Veterans. They did, and by luck, that evening there was a camp meeting at the Ramada Inn, the big motel in town, and I was invited to attend. It was a dinner meeting. The head table was on a little dais. At one end was the American flag, and at the other was the Confederate flag. About 25 or 30 people were there. The meeting started with the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. It's a ritual I went through every morning during my school days. You place your right hand over your heart and recite, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. When I was at school, I hardly thought of what the words meant, but in present circumstances, the words seemed quite profound, particularly the word indivisible. The assembly then turned to the Confederate flag, and right hands open, palm up, pledged this oath. I salute the Confederate flag with affection, reverence, and undying devotion to the cause for which it stands. After supper, a video was shown. It was about that most precious relic of the cause, the Confederate flag. At a recent national convention of the Sons of Confederate Veterans in Chattanooga, Tennessee, a group of young blacks had brought pressure on the mayor to stop the Sons flying it. For some blacks, the Confederate flag is a symbol of their oppression. The mayor had bowed to their request, and the video told the story of the Sons' battle to display their colors. If I hadn't visited Beauvoir, I might have found the seriousness with which the sons viewed the tape comic, but I understood the importance of their flag to them. When the meeting was over, some people came over to me and asked me what I thought about the video. And I had to admit, I was in two minds. On the one hand, displaying the Confederate flag doesn't seem an issue worth getting upset over. It's the rebel flag, a symbol known widely outside the U.S., even if the cause that it represents is not. But, on the other hand, I'm not black, so I can't say what the flag means to someone whose great-grandfather was a slave. I don't think my Talmudic dialogue between two points of view impressed them. For the sons, this was a simple question of rights, and theirs were being infringed in this case.
One fellow in particular, a round, ruddy-faced man, was extremely agitated by the fact. So agitated that I never caught his name, but I did catch his drift. He was in my face with it. The freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution were being so badly eroded by the coercive federal government that citizens of the United States were no longer free, in his view. Well, if you don't think you're free, what is freedom, I asked. But he rumbled on. Look at Ruby Ridge. At Ruby Ridge in 1992, federal law enforcement agents shot and killed a white supremacist named Randy Weaver. It was the first in an escalating series of incidents between the federal government and those who wished to live outside its purview that led to the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City last year. I got the sense that while most of the folks in the room didn't condone the bombing, they understood the frustrations that led the bombers to take their action. In a sense, the little groups setting up their own protectorates in places like Montana and Idaho, enclaves that deny the constitutional legitimacy of today's federal government, are the heirs of the Confederate cause. They are mini-secessionists, and the right to secede, to break the social compact that created America, was what these fellows' forebears fought for. And that right was guaranteed by the Constitution, according to the ruddy-faced man whose complexion was getting redder by the minute. Those states had the right to secede from the Union. Now, I was hot. I had spent the last two weeks driving around Mississippi listening to people's opinions. Most of them I disagreed with, but I'd held my tongue because my job was to listen, not to argue. But this guy was too much. I told him, first of all, that's not true. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the states can walk out when they want. Oh, yes, it does. And even if it does, which it doesn't, you can't expect one part of the country to sit still if the other half just walks away. You're going to fight to prevent that. Now the fellow was beat red. There's a lot of people around who think they know the Constitution, but they don't. And he stormed out. The calmer voice of C.C. Miller, a local veterinarian, interjected, Some fellas get a little hot-headed. Yeah, I see. In calmer tones, we continued to talk about our views of America, refracted through the disputed prism of the Constitution, which, in C.C.'s opinion, had been degraded and reinterpreted away from its original intentions, particularly in religion. America is a Christian country, said the veterinarian. It was founded by white Christians. I said, look, it may be that the United States was founded by white men, most of whom were Christians, but the Constitution specifically states there will be no official religion established. How do you think I, as a non-Christian, feel about the idea of the U.S. being a Christian nation? He answered, firm but polite, you're a minority. That's tough. Sitting with us were a couple of teenage boys who attended private, white, Christian schools, and what contact they had with black people was pretty tense. Robert Bush told me about a friend who had been badly beaten up by a group of blacks. One day we'll get back at him, he said, with quiet certainty. I asked the young man if he ever thought about where blacks were coming from, what it was like to know your ancestors had been slaves, bought and sold in this very state, and then freed into profound poverty. Did he ever think what effect that might have on a group of people? He looked genuinely puzzled. I've never really thought about that. The next morning I drove north fast, faster than I should have. I crossed over the Mississippi River at Vicksburg. I followed its western shore through Louisiana and Arkansas. I was still agitated from the night before, partially because I found the views expressed extreme, yet most of the folks in the room were not from the extremist fringe. 
They were pretty middle class, but there was more to it. I knew that their views weren't unique to the South. I needed to make one more stop in Mississippi. I recrossed the big river at Greenville and headed straight through the Delta to Clarksdale. I parked on what was left of the town's railroad tracks and walked into Wade Walton's barber shop, the unofficial community center for Clarksdale's black musicians. Wade Walton was giving a haircut to a dapper-looking man, Harold Espy, mayor of Clarksdale. From the barber's chair, he asked what parts of the state I had visited. Well, I said, I've been to Tupelo. Espy shook his head in mock seriousness. It's cold over there. I laughed. Philadelphia, Mississippi? Ice cold. Biloxi? They just want your money. Then last night, I met with the sons of Confederate veterans down in Natchez. At this, he laughed uncontrollably. We nattered on a bit. Then I asked, why stay in Mississippi? One fellow hanging around said, it's home. I tried living in Oakland, California for a while. I came back after a few months. Why? Too fast, too violent. In Clarksdale, you hear about people being killed. In Oakland, you hear them being killed. The mayor answered my question this way. I don't think I'm part of Mississippi. I look north to Memphis. A new highway is being built between Clarksdale and that city. When we get that road, Espy said, the words trailing off into a smile of anticipation. Then he added, I look north.